we are back with a brand new, never reported account of the alleged assassination of Congressman Nick Begich and Hale Boggs, an account we uncovered in part because of your help. For my heart media, this is Missing in Alaska, the story of two congressmen who vanished in 1972 and my quest to figure out what happened to them. I'm your host, John Walzak. At the end of episode six, I gave you an important task. Help me figure out the identity of a tipster who forwarded mysterious letters to the FBI in 1997. These letters apparently contained important information about the alleged bombing of the missing plane. I learned about them via a Freedom of Information Act request I filed with the FBI. What I got back from the FBI was minimal and heavily redacted. The names of everyone involved, the two people who exchanged the letters, and the tipster who forwarded their correspondence were blacked out. For some reason, though, the FBI did not black out the tipster's work address, phone number, or fax. So I gave that information to you, and I asked you to help me identify the tipster. One astute listener quickly realized that I made a small mistake. I gave you the wrong number. My bad. I was off by a single digit. The FBI gave me a poor quality copy of a fax, and I mistook an eight for a six. Anyway, the listener, who doesn't want to be named, dug up CD-ROM phone directories from the 90s. She booted up an old computer, black screen, green letters and numbers, the type my parents had when I was a kid. She punched in the number, and voila, she figured out where the tipster worked, the First Amendment Center at Vanderbilt University. Several other listeners later figured this out too, but she was the first. With that clue, I made an educated guess about the tipster's identity. I guessed that the tipster was, in fact, John Siegenthaler, a journalist and political activist who founded the First Amendment Center. Unfortunately, Siegenthaler died in 2014. I tried to reach his son and his secretary, but no luck, no response. So I turned once more to my favorite research tool, archives. Siegenthaler was important, so I figured, hey, maybe his papers are preserved. And they are. Lucky for me, a Vanderbilt archivist named Zach Johnson had just finished processing them. Zach told me he would dig around to see what he could find. Two weeks later, he emailed me. Amazingly, Zach found the letter, the blacked out letter the FBI gave me. Except he found the original, confirming that John Siegenthaler was the tipster, the person I asked you to help me find. Zach sent me a PDF of the letter. Here it is. January 30th, 1997, Mr. Tommy Boggs, 2550 North Street Northwest, Washington, D.C., 20037. Dear Tommy, I apologize for the delay in getting this information to you. Dolores fell and injured her shoulder, and I've been out of the office since we talked. Enclosed is the correspondence. The two people involved are William Scott Day, the author of the letters. He is a serial killer who, as I mentioned to you, murdered my brother's mother-in-law several years ago. Lyle Jackson, the recipient of the letters, a photojournalist who, until recently, worked for our center. Lyle did a television story on Day after he was captured, and since then, they have exchanged occasional letters. Lyle, knowing of my interest in Day, shared these letters on the day before I phoned you. 
The Hoover angle sounds far-fetched to me. A convict conning a convict. On the other hand, however, the insurance motive obviously could have some basis in fact. At any rate, I will keep you informed if there are any subsequent letters. Best regards, John Siegenthaler. So, Siegenthaler first sent the letters to Tommy Boggs, Hale's son, not the FBI. Then either Siegenthaler, Boggs, or both, but I think Siegenthaler, gave the FBI copies of the letters exchanged between William Scott Day, the serial killer, and Lyle Jackson, the journalist. Yes, this new account of the alleged assassination comes from newly uncovered letters written by a serial killer. Here's the deal. Day was in prison for multiple murders. He stabbed, strangled, smashed in heads, and slit throats. Violent guy. He escaped prison multiple times and killed people in Tennessee, Texas, and Arizona. Because of the Arizona murder, Day ended up, for a while, in a cell next to Jerry Paisley, of all people. And that brings me to the second PDF that Zach, the Vanderbilt archivist, sent. Zach also found copies of the letters Day sent Jackson. I'm about to read them to you. But first, let me note that while I am reading most of the contents of the letters, I'm not sharing them in their entirety. There are personal details, mainly about Jackson, the journalist, that are not pertinent to this story. So I'm leaving them out. Otherwise, here you go. September 12th, 1995. Dear Lyle, it's good to hear from you. Reset your calendar to November 7th. That's when my sentencing will take place. My lawyer wants more time to prepare for my sentencing. November. God, I'm never going to get out of here. My sentencing hearing will take place on September 25th and 26th. My family will be here, and friends too. But actual sentencing won't be till November 7th. Your life sounds exciting. New Mexico one day, LA the next. I have a fantastic story for you. My neighbor is a small-time mafia dude. He killed a big-time Aryan Brotherhood dude, and there's a contract out on him by the AB. Guido, my neighbor, is 54 years old and looking for a way out. He is talking to the feds about the plane that was carrying U.S. Congressman Hale Boggs that went down in 1972. Cokie Roberts is Hale Boggs' daughter. Boggs was chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee and wanted to cut the budget of the FBI. Guido claims he placed the bomb on the plane on the orders of his boss, who was doing a favor for Hoover. That's the sticky part for the feds. They believe a bomb was on the plane, but don't want to believe Hoover had it done. If and when this breaks, it will be national news. Guido and the feds are dickering this thing out. It's pretty wild. Guido told me the feds would accept the story and him if he'll drop the Hoover part. He's thinking it over. He wants to go to federal prison instead of state prison. It's a pretty incredible story, and I don't know how much to believe, but I don't put anything past Hoover. Remember, you heard it here first. Smile. I've been listening to How the West Was Lost by Ken Burns on the local PBS station. It's outstanding. Well, my friend, I'll go. I'll keep you posted. Take care. Peace. Be a good human. Write when you can. As always, Scott. October 2nd, 1995. Dear Lyle, thanks for writing. It's always good to hear from you. Before getting into the Guido story, let me catch you up on my never-ending saga. My sentencing hearing has been reset for November 6th and 7th, and actual sentencing for the 27th of November. I won't see my family till then. I was very bummed out over the last second delay, but I'm over it now. 
I'll keep you posted. Now, on to Guido. He is a walking and talking story. My problem is, I don't know how much is truth and how much is macho. We have to talk through our air vents, all very prison-like. He told me last night that he wasn't at liberty to say, but the shit was going to hit the fan soon. Here's what I know. Guido took the making of a bomb to Alaska in 1972. He and Danny Zivinich put it together and placed aboard the plane Hale Boggs was in. There was also a state congressman on the plane. Guido says he got two birds with one stone. Guido married the widow of the state congressman within a year of the crash. The insurance policy paid off about the time they married. He says she knew nothing about the hit. I asked how he met her, and he refuses to say. When the pipeline started in 73, he and some friends started a coke pipeline from Tucson to Alaska. Guido bought a bar and sold coke along with booze. He also bought a house in Alaska and Tucson. This is where the motive gets murky. There was a big insurance policy on the state congressman, plus he was very law and order, and some people wanted to run their own man against him or to fill his seat in case of his demise. Guido is tight-lipped when it comes to his marriage or the motive for killing the state congressman. He is very emphatic about Hoover wanting Boggs taken out. He said the order came from Pete Licavoli, who was the head mafia guy in Tucson at the time. Didn't Hoover die in 1972? I can't remember. Guido has no reason to bullshit me. I'm an old head, and stories don't impress me. He is consistent in telling me this story. He doesn't get his facts screwed up, so I believe him on the Hale Boggs part. His marriage to the widow and the big insurance policy leaves me wondering. The people who wanted to run their candidate did, and won. Guido stayed in Alaska till the pipeline was almost finished. He got into a shooting war with the Cross Brothers out of Vegas over territory for coke sales. That's when it got too hot for him, and his marriage was over by then. He came back to Tucson and began blowing up businesses who wouldn't take their vending machines. I know that is true, because my investigator in the public defender's office was a cop back then, and says he remembers the places being hit. A bar called PJ's, a place called Paulo's Prime Rib, and several beauty shops. It was called the Dynamite Wars. The Bonanno family was running Tucson by then. Guido is at court this morning, so I can't ask him about Dateline NBC yet. Wouldn't it be a scoop on ABC and Cokie Roberts if NBC broke the story? After all, Cokie was Hale Boggs' daughter. Smile. Guido and me talk very clandestinely through the air vents. We're not supposed to do that. We're neighbors, so if we talk quietly, we can get away with it. By the way, Guido is being tried for a 17-year-old murder. The guy he killed lost 1,800 pounds of coke in an airplane crash. So Guido shot him three times in the head. Nice guy, huh? Guido is back, and I told him about Dateline NBC, and he wants to talk it over with his investigator, who has his own agenda, like writing a book. I'll let you know what he decides as soon as possible. Till then, take care, peace, be a good human, be cool. As always, Scott. October 3rd, 1995. Dear Lyle, Guido passes on the Dateline NBC project. He has so many irons in the fire, it's mind-boggling. He is being investigated for murder in Alaska and elsewhere. He says the feds want him to be low profile and quiet about the bombing of Hale Boggs' plane in exchange for letting him serve his time in another state where the Aryan Brotherhood doesn't want to kill him. Lyle, the guy is involved up to his ass in crime, but he also bullshits too. He says the feds want to keep the Hoover connection quiet. Personally, I think he's making deals with them on more stuff than just the Boggs situation. He is 54, in bad health, and looking for a safe place to serve his time. 
He has 116 years to serve right now. So no big scoop here. I believe the bog situation can't be kept quiet. Have your friend from Dateline NBC call the U.S. attorney in Tucson and confront him on the plane bombing. Who knows? It might work. I'll go now. Take care. Be a good human. Scott. Maybe your friend can break the story. Guido's real name is Jerome Max Paisley. October 16th, 1995. Dear Lyle, how goes the war? Hope you're winning. Guido is pressing me about when someone from NBC will contact him or his investigator. He is one of those immediate gratification kind of people. He's collecting newspaper articles from here in Alaska to show the producer. He's biting at the bit to tell his story, and even his lawyer and investigator are behind him. He's hoping if he goes national, it will help him out of this state's prison system, where his life is worth about two cents. He already has 116 years to do, and the state is trying to give him another 25 to life. He's 54, so he's never getting out. It's a matter of where he does the time. I'll keep this brief. I've been writing you a lot lately. Write if you get the chance. Take care. Peace. I get sentenced November 27th. My lawyer is cautiously optimistic. I'm scared to hope, so I'm looking for the worst. Be a good human. Later, Scott. October 23rd, 1995. Dear Lyle, it's good to hear from you. Guido is no longer my neighbor. Damn it. They moved him to the pod next door. Nevertheless, I can still get the facts to him. Your friend at Dateline acts like a bomb would be right in front of his face. The ball is in Guido's court now, so we'll see what happens. Guido showed me news clippings of some of his exploits. So he's not just telling jailhouse stories. He's for real. We'll see if this pans out or not. I turned 44 on Saturday and feel damn lucky. My heart feels 21, but my body cracks, pops, and creaks every time I move. I've given up on pop music. I only listen to the oldies station now, much like Al Bundy. Well, that covers my end. I'll keep you posted on Guido. I don't think he's lying. Take care. Peace. Be a good human. Zen is my motto now. As always, Scott. October 31st, 1995. Dear Lyle, Happy Halloween. I heard from Guido today, so I thought I'd update you. His investigator, Bob Annenberg, is in touch with Chris. Chris asked for more info, and Guido complied. It occurred to me that Chris depends on Nexus too much. If it was already news, old news, it wouldn't be new news, duh. Guido wouldn't have a story if it was common knowledge. This has been a secret for a long time. Guido is now using it to get out of the Arizona prison system. After all, he is snitching on other people. We'll see where it goes. I'll keep you posted. My aggravation slash mitigation hearing begins next Monday. That's where the prosecutor presents to the judge reasons why I should be killed, and my side presents reasons why I shouldn't. My family is going to be here from the 4th through the 8th, and I'm really excited about seeing them. My sister has a 16-week-old newborn I'll get to see. I'm a sucker for babies. I'll keep you posted on Guido and my legal woes. I already know my November 27th sentencing date is going to be postponed. Man, living with this type of uncertainty is killing me, literally. Take care, peace, be a good human. As always, Scott. And that's it. I don't have any more letters. Neither does Lyle Jackson, the journalist, who confirmed to me that he did correspond with Day for about a year. After that, he said, he stopped. The letters got too creepy and manipulative. 
he tossed them in the trash. Jackson said he has no memory of discussing the bombing allegations with Day. Day died in 2006. Okay, so a ton to digest here. First and foremost, via William Scott Day, a serial killer, we now have the third known recorded account of Paisley's bombing claim. The other two are the transcript of the jailhouse interview Paisley did with investigators in November 1994 and the report prepared by private investigator Robert Annenberg in August 1995. All three accounts share similarities, but there are also major discrepancies between what Paisley told investigators and what he told Day, a fellow prisoner. In every account, Paisley said that he transported a suitcase to Alaska and that the missing congressman's plane was bombed. He also repeatedly cited the large life insurance payout Peggy Begich received after Nick Begich disappeared. But, like I said, there are major discrepancies. First, it's important to state the obvious. Two accounts were recorded by professional investigators. The third was recorded by a fellow prisoner, William Scott Day, who spoke to Paisley through an air vent. While Day's letters contain details he couldn't possibly have known without speaking to Paisley, they also contain minor errors that seem to be his fault, not Paisley's. For example, Day repeatedly refers to Nick Begich as, quote, a state congressman. Obviously, Begich was a U.S. congressman. My best guess is that Paisley used the phrase Alaska congressman, and Day misinterpreted it. Now, that said, on to the discrepancies. We have A, the suitcase, B, Paisley's role, C, Peggy Begich's role, and D, which mob boss was behind the bombing. A, the suitcase. In the first two accounts, Paisley claimed that he did not know what was in the suitcase he transported to Anchorage in 1972 until later. In the third account, he obviously knew, early on, that it contained explosives. B, Paisley's role. In the first two accounts, Paisley said that all he did was fly the suitcase to Anchorage. In the third account, he stated that he helped piece together a bomb and that he and Danny Zivinich put it on the congressman's plane. C. Peggy Begich's role. In the first two accounts, Paisley said Peggy visited Tucson around August 1972 and knew about the plot. In the third, he said she had no knowledge of the plot. And D. Which mob boss was behind the bombing? In the first two accounts, Paisley implicated Joe Bonanno. In the third, he said Pete Licavoli ordered the hit. So, why the discrepancies? Which version is true? Or, again, is the entire story false? Was everything Paisley said a lie? My best guess is that the truth lies somewhere in the middle, but that the third account, the unfiltered account shared with a fellow prisoner, not law enforcement, is closer to the truth. In the third account, Paisley knew the suitcase contained explosives. That makes more sense to me than his previous, oh shucks guys, I didn't know what was in it, statements. And notice, in the third account, Paisley was very specific, more nuanced, in saying he transported the making of a bomb to Alaska, not a ready-to-go bomb. That makes more sense to me. 
In the third account, William Scott Day wrote that Paisley and Danny Zivinich put the bomb together and, quote, placed aboard the plane Hale Boggs was in. Paisley helping to finalize the bomb, I can see. Paisley helping to put it on the missing plane, no. To my knowledge, he was in Arizona, not Alaska, when the plane disappeared. My best guess is that Day misheard part of what Paisley said, but it's just as likely that Day heard Paisley correctly and Paisley lied. Most importantly, in the third account, Paisley claimed that mob boss Pete Licavoli Sr., not Joe Bonanno, ordered the hit. That lines up with what I speculated in episode 11, tail end. And let me be clear, we finalized the script for episode 11, which was supposed to be our last episode, before we got copies of the third account, Day's Letters. In episode 11, I cited several pieces of information to support my speculation that Paisley subbed in Joe Bonanno for Pete Licavoli in the first two accounts. One, all of the mob-connected men in the Peggy Paisley wedding photos, the red dot photos, were primarily tied to the Licavolis, not the Bonanos. And Paisley and Peggy honeymooned in Mexico with two of Pete Licavoli Sr.'s kids, Pete Jr. and Kathy. Two, the Contiki, where Paisley claimed Peggy met with mob boss Joe Bonanno, was actually owned, in part at least, by the Licavolis, not the Bonanos. And three, at least one FBI informant witnessed Paisley with Pete Licavoli Sr. only 27 days before the congressman disappeared. Around the same time, Paisley said he flew the suitcase to Anchorage. Now, there's one final discrepancy to examine, and that's Peggy Begich's alleged role in the plot. In this case, I tend to believe the first two accounts, and I know that seems extremely unfair, but here's why. Something in the third account, Day's Letters, strikes me as odd. Here are two quotes. Quote, Guido is tight-lipped when it comes to his marriage or the motive for killing the state congressman. End quote. And, quote, I asked how he met her, and he refuses to say, End quote. The official story is that Paisley and Peggy met at the Holiday Inn in Anchorage in late 1973. If true, why wouldn't Paisley just tell that today? Why would he refuse to say how he met Peggy? Why would he be, quote, tight-lipped about their marriage? Because, usually, there's nothing to hide about meeting someone at a Holiday Inn, and he was spilling all the other details. On the other hand, if Paisley made up the entire thing, well, still. Why would he refuse to say how he met Peggy if everything was a lie? If he wanted to tell Day the most colorful story, flip it around, wouldn't he just tell Day what he told investigators? That Peggy met with a mob boss at the Contiki? I think Paisley regretted dragging Peggy into the story at all because after the first two accounts, he never again claimed that she had any role in the alleged bomb plot. It is possible that Peggy had no knowledge of or incomplete knowledge of the alleged plot it is possible she was manipulated and used. I don't know. Next, I need to address Paisley's allegations about J. Edgar Hoover. Paisley told Day that Hoover wanted Hale Boggs dead. But Hoover died in May 1972, five months before Boggs disappeared. Something even William Scott Day noted in his letters. To me, and John Siegenthaler, this part sounds off. 
What makes sense to me is that Paisley wasn't entirely sure why the congressman's plane was bombed. If his story is true, either version of it, his role was, at the least, to transport a suitcase to Anchorage and, at the most, to help build a bomb. But I doubt mob leaders would have looped him in on their inner thinking, their exact motives. Paisley wasn't omnipotent. If the story is true, it's not like he would know every single detail. He wasn't the mastermind. He didn't claim to be the mastermind. But, obviously, if he transported a suitcase to Anchorage, if he knew the missing plane was bombed, of course he would have wondered why, which could explain the Hoover angle, speculation, or, again, maybe it's all BS. Despite flaws, I still think the third account, via William Scott Day, is closer to the truth than the first two accounts. And doesn't that make sense to you, too? This was Jerry Paisley speaking with a fellow prisoner through an air vent, not to investigators with a tape recorder rolling. We don't even know whether or not Paisley was aware that Day wrote everything down. Now, that said, the fact that there are discrepancies between the three accounts that can't be explained away as transcription errors immediately and understandably calls into question Paisley's integrity. But no surprise here. It's not shocking at all to learn that Paisley was a liar. The question, obviously, is how much of what Paisley said in this particular case is true. How much is false? Is it all false? Is it all true? Or at least one version of it? Does the answer lie somewhere in the middle? Something else we get from the third account. A reason why, whether or not he told the truth, Paisley spoke at all. A motive. Day wrote that Paisley wanted to transfer to a federal prison that he wanted to get out of the Arizona prison system, but that never happened. Paisley remained incarcerated in Arizona until he died in 2010. Nevertheless, we have, for the first time, a reason why Paisley either snitched or told a fairy tale. Finally, we know Paisley spoke with three Arizona and Alaska investigators, plus one journalist, but did Paisley speak directly with the FBI? Did the FBI interview Paisley? The answer here is still unclear. Tom Davis, the Arizona investigator who knew Paisley for decades, observed his wedding to Peggy Begich, and helped interview him in 1994, is certain Paisley did speak with the FBI. And Paisley himself said he was speaking with, quote, the feds. But in the FBI documents I obtained, there's no proof that the Bureau interviewed Paisley directly. That said, the FBI also excluded copies of William Scott Day's letters, which I only obtained thanks to a diligent archivist. If the FBI did interview Paisley, then the Bureau has yet another account of the alleged assassination, a fourth account. Now, obviously, I don't have the power to compel the FBI to reveal anything, but Congress does. So if you're a lawmaker or you work on Capitol Hill or in national media, do something. If you work in Alaska media, and a shout out again to the Anchorage Daily News, which still hasn't reported this story, do something. If you want us to search Port Etches again with better equipment, do something. We need your help. This week, your task is to listen to all three accounts of the alleged bombing and compare them. Go back and re-listen to episode five, the transcript, and to one of our bonuses, the PI report. Then re-listen to this episode. Take notes, compare the accounts, 
Tell us what you think. You can reach us by phone at one eight three three MIA Tips. That's one eight three three six four two eight four seven seven. Again, one eight three three six four two eight four seven seven. Or you can reach us via email at tips at iheartmedia.com. That's tips, T-I-P-S, at iheartmedia.com. An important note, none of the people Jerry Paisley claimed took part in or had knowledge of the alleged bombing, Joe Bonanno, Pete Licavoli, Joe Iaterola, Danny Zivinich, Gene Fowler, Larry Fowler, or Peggy Begich, were ever charged with or convicted of any crimes tied to any of Paisley's allegations. Peggy Begich and Danny Zivinich declined multiple requests for an on-the-record interview. Gene Fowler was unavailable for an interview. Joe Bonanno, Pete Licavoli, Joe Iatarola, and Larry Fowler are dead. Finally, I want to clarify something about which there's been a good deal of confusion. In one of our bonus episodes, The Last Ham, I interviewed Joe Tatum, the only person alive who heard the mysterious radio transmission the day the congressman disappeared the transmission in which a man claimed to be the missing plane's pilot. Twice during the course of this show, I stated that the Air Force believed the transmission to be a hoax. But still, we've heard from a flood of people who want to know what I think. To be clear, I agree with the Air Force. I think the transmission was a hoax. Like the Air Force, I do believe that the ham operators heard a transmission, but the transmission itself was likely fake. Ben Bowen is our executive producer. Paul Deccan is our supervising producer. Chris Brown is our assistant producer. Seth Nicholas Johnson is our producer. Sam Teagarden is our research assistant. And I'm your host and executive producer, John Walzak. You can find me on Twitter at, at John Walzak. J-O-N-W-A-L-C-Z-A-K. Special thanks to Zach Johnson, the archivist who processed John Siegenthaler's papers and to the Special Collections and University Archives at Vanderbilt University. Archives are amazing, y'all. This show would be a hollow shell without them. And, like nearly everything else, they're facing huge financial shortfalls as a result of pandemic budget cuts. So, when possible, please support Archives, either directly through donations or, vocally, to your elected officials and university leaders. Archives preserve history. They're important. I'm not sure when we'll be back, but trust me, we are still pursuing this story. So again, and I know you'll probably hate me for saying this, stay tuned. Missing in Alaska is a co-production of iHeartMedia and Greenfort Media.